Welcome to the Jazz Shapers podcast from Mishkondorea. What you're about to hear was originally broadcast on Jazz FM. However, the music has been cut or shortened due to rights issues. This is Jazz Shapers with Elliot Moss on Jazz FM. Listening colour in partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Welcome to Jazz Shapers. It's where the shapers of business join the shapers of jazz, soul and blues. I'm Elliot Moss. Our guest today is Misha Nunu, founder and creative director of Misha Nunu, the women's fashion wear label with sustainability at its core. Born in Bahrain, raised in London, Misha wanted to be a fashion designer from the age of 11. She won industry recognition for her eponymous label, founded in 2011, when she became a finalist for the 2013 CFDA Vogue Fashion Fund. Misha established on-demand manufacturing, and in case you didn't know, one of the dark secrets of the fashion industry is that large quantities of unsold inventory often end up in landfill. Misha's on-demand manufacturing means each piece ordered through her website is made specifically for that customer and delivered in five days. No wholesale or inventory. She was also the first designer to use social media as a venue for fashion shows, exclusively debuting her spring-summer 2016 collection on Instagram and autumn 2016 collection on Snapchat instead of a runway show. We'll talk to Misha about all of this and her month-long pop-up in London, offering sustainable styling advice, panels, workshops and more. We've also got the wonderful sounds of, amongst others, Alex Meleros and Band Utopia, as well as James Brown and Kurt Elling. That's today's Jazz Shapers. Here's the Baylor Project with Our Love Is Here To Stay. It's very clear That was the Baylor Project with Our Love Is Here To Stay. As billed earlier, Misha Nunu is my business shaper and I'm really pleased to welcome her all the way from the other side of the pond. Hello. Hello. Thank Thank you you for having me. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining. Now, um, here we are in not-so-sunny June. Um, Tell me why you're here before we start talking about this business. What's going on right now for you? Well, I'm, I'm... You know, I'm based in New York, but actually I'm in London every eight weeks or so because my family's here and I'm um, half English to begin with and, and was brought up here. But I'm here for the whole month of June opening our first ever pop-up shop. We've been an online-only brand up until this point, and now we've, we're doing our first ever bricks-and-mortar retail experience, which has been extraordinary. Extraordinary because it's quite tiring. Um, it, it, I was just complaining about the fact that I'm exhausted, but I think it's the rain that's doing that. It's tiring, but it's also extraordinary in that I get to meet this woman. And I feel as though you can liken it. I, I, I never dated online, but it's like for the past two and a half years, I've been online dating with all these women. And now I get to meet them. They come into the store. They come to meet me. We talk about the clothes. We talk about what they do every day. And it's really been the most fulfilling thing to see that this woman really exists and to, to meet her in person. Because eight years ago, this was an idea that you thought, well, maybe this is going to work. I'm going to create this fashion business. I'm going to create a brand. Yeah. Um, and of course, you hadn't done any online dating at that point. You were just, it was your first foray. <laughs> exactly. What were those early days like when you were going from an idea into actual execution? Um, 
I quite like that we're likening this to dating. Um, so it was we a, very, this it was a very different type of courtship then. Um, <laughs> when I started eight years ago, it was a traditional fashion business in the in the sense that it was a wholesale business. I took orders from major retailers. Uh, my first retailers and the ones that I worked with for the longest time were the likes of Bergdorf Goodman, Shopbop, Neiman Marcus, you know, a lot of big players in, in the US. And... Um, I did that for about five and a half years. Uh, it was four collections a year. There was a huge amount of waste um, with it because I would design, you know, for the major collections, you'd be designing about 60 different styles twice a year. And then for the mi- more minor collections, you'd be d- looking at 35 styles. It was a huge amount of creative output. And um, I did that for five and a half years and I started to see how retail was changing so dramatically. The landscape was changing Big box retailers didn't really feel as though they knew their customers. We'd go on the shop floor and ask salespeople about the customer and it would be a very different story from what we'd hear from the buyers who were often, you know, controlling budgets across 35 different doors. And, you know, what someone wants in Atlanta is very different to what someone wants in New York City or London or Paris, etc. So it became apparent to me that I was taking direction from people that actually didn't necessarily know any better than I did. And so with the rise of direct-to-consumer in other industries, um, I decided that I wanted to go direct and I wanted it to be online only to begin with. And that's when I, I kind of relaunched Misha Nunu. And it was a few different things that I did all at once. I went inventoryless, So we're actually a sustainable fashion brand in all of our manufacturing practices in the sense that we don't carry inventory. So after four months, I, I launched in September of 2016. And by November... I was seeing all of those big box players that are online, the likes of Net-A-Porter and Farfetch and all of them going on sale. And, you know, by November, it isn't necessarily even cold. So all of the fall winter things, those coats and all those beautiful pieces were already on 50% off. Now, why would you be inclined to buy anything at full price if everything is promotionally driven? So I, I understood why retailers were doing it. It's because you have stock that you need to sell off. And we'd had a good season, but we also had about 30% of our stock to sell off. So... I was thinking about how not to damage the environment, the, the waste that we were looking at that was going to contribute to landfill really upset me and also not damage brand by, you know, having to compete with these retailers. So I went inventoryless. It took us about 10 months to set up that whole program. And by, let's say, probably June, July of 2017, um, we had our on-demand manufacturing practices in place. We work with a female-owned factory in uh, their headquarters in Hong Kong and they produce in Shenzhen in China. And I go myself twice a year, my CEO two times a year also to check on everything. Um, but I went inventoryless, and then I decided to go very, very streamlined in the way that we designed the collection. So we were looking at how we could create a wardrobe for a woman that also felt a little bit more minimal. So the whole thing about fashion is people are constantly trying to sell you more. You know, these are the five clutches that you need. These are the 459 different trench coats that you might need this season. And realistically... If you have a beautiful piece in your wardrobe, you don't need to buy another thing that's very similar a year later. Um, So I was kind of borrowing from the concept of how men dress and how men build their wardrobe and invest in pieces. And um, we started off with the Easy 8, which is the kind of modular foundational wardrobe in the collection, wardrobe that we kind of suggest that you start with in the collection. 
And then we built on that and um, went into, you know, other pieces that we added. But everything goes back to that modular foundational eight. And I'm going to hold you there because if you manage to just take on board all those things, you are a genius. Because <laughs> no. this is my no. amazing guest, Misha Nunu, who's got so much to talk about. And I want to pick up on so many things that you just said around on-demand manufacturing, around the notion of, of no having no inventory uh, and all the other related stuff. And I like the idea of, of, of you taking a, a nod from the way that a man dresses. That's brilliant, although not the way I dress. Thank you, Misha. There you go. That was quick, wasn't it? It didn't take long to, to dispel the myth that I don't dress well. Time for some music right now. We're coming back to Misha in a moment. Uh, this is Alex Maleros and Banda Utopia featuring Sabrina Maleros with Uno Esta. That was the lovely sound of Alex Maleros and Banda Utopia featuring Sabrina Maleros with Uno Esta. Misha Nunu is my business shaper. She, if you were listening earlier, has just given a brilliant exposition of everything to do with her take on fashion. What strikes me, Misha, um, reading about you and now meeting you, is the clarity of thought you had back then about what was wrong and the belief in yourself to go and do something about it. I want to ask you about that belief. Where is that belief come from? Because clarity is one thing. Often there are, I meet lots of smart people uh, in here, I'm very lucky, and obviously lots of smart people that, that, don't, that aren't in here. But this belief that they have, I think, is what singles out most of my business shapers. Tell me where that's come from, that inner sense of, I'm right. You know, I think that people often say to me, you know, you're clearly very risk averse. And actually, it's not necessarily true that I'm risk averse in my personal life. But professionally, I've always been risk averse. And I think that that comes from genuinely having taken the steps and learned about the fashion industry. You know, Malcolm Gladwell in Outliers talks about the 10,000 hour rule. And if you've put in 10,000 hours, it makes you an expert in something. That is a really, really long time. I mean, he's got a point. And I had spent more than 10,000 hours before I'd even started my own brand. I think I probably spent 10,000 hours just having an inkling of thinking about having my own brand age 15. So I was always really passionate about the industry and I knew so much about clothes, about the details of clothes, about how you manufacture clothes. And I think that that is really what allows me the confidence to make these decisions because I, it's not coming from a place where I don't know my subject matter. Mm. And, and you said to me again, you know, I didn't know any less than the people in um, name of Marcus or wherever it might right. have been because right. they they didn't know what the woman in Atlanta wanted versus the woman in Chicago versus the woman in New York or whatever. And so therefore I needed to get closer. When you started to get closer, did the answers reveal themselves or was it like most research where you're interpreting what you're hearing? It's a little bit of both. And I think that that's actually the thing that's so nice about having this offline activation in our pop-up shop is that it validates even further what you found out online. So, for example, in the first, you know, two and a half years up until this point, basically, we kind of, we had a relationship with the customer. We know, you know, she talks to us on social media. She talks to us through email. Um, we have all of these different subscribers and we have all these different customers. But there's only so far you can go through an email or a telephone call in asking somebody, so tell me, what is it that you do actually? What do you do? Because it's actually, it's, it's very revealing what somebody spends their time doing, but it's, it's quite an intimate question. And it isn't necessarily appropriate right away to ask your customer, so what do you do? The first thing that I ask someone that walks through the shop doors, after I've told them a little bit about the, the ethos and philosophy of the brand, if they don't already know about it, is I say, so tell me, what is it that you spend your time doing? What do you do? And we are 
filling a gap in the market. My my mission is to fill a white space in the market that I see for dressing a woman from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. and beyond. So giving her that versatile, functional wardrobe while still being chic. So, you know, I had an inkling that this woman was a corporate lawyer or a stockbroker or, you know, had started her own interior design firm. But when you come in, when people, women come in and within the first six days of being in business, those are the women that are coming into the store and that are seeking you out. Or, you know, a girl that's at UPenn and she's visiting her parents that live in London and she's about to go and start her first internship over the summer. Or, you know, a woman that works at LinkedIn or YouTube. I'm like, that's it. That is who I thought you were but this validates it properly now. And I suppose that's the issue for a lot of the buyers and major retailers is that they don't have the time to do all of the numbers and all the buying and all of that and be on the shop floor. And is it really appropriate to ask those questions? You know, maybe I can get away with it because I'm there and, and you know, you've come into my store and it's, it's an intimate experience with me. But, you know, as a buyer, can you, is that something that's allowed? Mm. So what is it that you do exactly? It might be like, you know, 40 minutes deep before you're allowed to get to that point. And that's a very important part of the equation. That's almost the most critical because it's who's going to buy you. In terms of your approach to the on-demand manufacturing and the fact that you're interested in sustainability, I want to come on to women-led factories in China mm. as well. How do you then square the circle? Because now I know who she is mm-hmm. and now I want to deliver something which is actually not wrecking the environment. How do you make sure those come together without a problem? That's actually a great question because the reason that I can do this is because we are giving you pieces that are foundational items. They are your hero pieces in your wardrobe. They are not the dress that you need to wear. You're coming in on a Thursday and you need to pick something up to wear to a party on Saturday night. So a critical part of the equation is that somebody comes in and they purchase a piece. It's shipped to them within seven to 10 business days. And um, that means that it's made from scratch and it's shipped, you know, to the customer. So seven to 10 business days is a really, you know, it's a great workaround. But as a result, it means that it can't be something that you need right away. It's a piece that you're keeping in your wardrobe and you're investing in your wardrobe. So it's like a wardrobe classic staple piece. Brilliant. So if, if I, that's exactly the point. If I was trying to give you, you know, your trend-driven seasonal pieces, this, this, this on-demand manufacturing aspect wouldn't work in the same way. Stay with me for much more from my brilliant guest, Misha Nunu. She'll be back in a couple of minutes. But first, we're going to hear from our programme partners, Mish Gondorea. Hopefully, they've got some very good advice for your business. My name is Sharon Tan. I'm a partner in the employment team at Mishcon Dorea. One of the questions that I'm asked by clients most frequently is, how do I deal with somebody who is underperforming? It's a very difficult thing, actually, this to get right, and it crops up very frequently in practice. And the reason it's difficult to get right is that it's very difficult often for people to acknowledge that they aren't performing. We all find it a very difficult thing to admit, even to ourselves. And, of course it's very important to make sure that you handle things in a legally compliant manner whenever you are dealing with these issues. But I think it's as important to bear in mind that you are dealing with a human being because in practical terms, what I have seen is that people are much more likely to sue, litigation is more likely to materialise and unhappiness on all fronts is likely to result if people feel that they haven't been treated fairly properly and appropriately in the circumstances. So the two really go hand in hand. And I think that is critical as a point to bear in mind whenever you are managing somebody who you don't think is coming up to scratch. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. 
There are many ways for you to enjoy all our former Jazz Shapers and indeed to hear this programme again. You can ask Alexa uh, to play Jazz Shapers and then you can hear many of the recent shows. Or if you pop Jazz Shapers into iTunes or your preferred podcast platform, you can enjoy the full archive there. But back to today's guest, it's Misha Noonan. She's the founder and creative director at Misha Noonan, the women's wear fashion label. I often say this, but when I start doing the research for a, for a brand or a person, I know nothing, generally. Uh, sometimes I do, you know, if, it, if it's someone that's sort of globally famous. Yeah. But here you are, maybe you will be globally famous, Misha. Let's, let's, not, <laughs> let's not assume that it won't happen. Um, and then you dig into the story. And I'm always intrigued about where things have come from and, and people's belief and things like that. Right now, you've hit on a moment in time where people really do care about the environment. Over the last few months in this country and probably in the States and probably globally, actually, we're seeing a, a real move towards that. As you build your ability to deliver on it, what are the sorts of things that you need to take into consideration? How do you ensure that your supply chain is the right supply chain? How do you ensure that the products are of good quality as well? Because often people think that you'll have to make a sacrifice yeah. if you're being sustainable. Right. No, I think that um, from, you know, that there's a couple of different things there. So, for example, um, when we talk about making sure that our supply chain, we, you know, we have transparency into our supply chain, our um, manufacturer is actually an investor in the business, which I think is really kind of a critical piece of the puzzle. She has a small part of the business, so she is, you know, invested in making sure that it's successful and also invested in making sure that we aren't caught having, you know, some kind of malpractice suit because of labor practices in China, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, as much as my, me and my team are there four times a year, we have a QC person on staff that we pay for. You know, we actually have the sample room sewers that we pay for and they're on our payroll. So as much as possible, we're kind of on top of all of those things without actually being in the factory with them every day. Um, so that's one part of the sustainable component. The other part that you speak about quality is really critical too. That was kind of why it took 10 months to really iron out the kinks because, when you think about people producing a line of things, if you're producing a line of UK size 12 trousers for a woman, they're all being cut at the same time, they're all being sewn at the same time, and so there are very, very minimal changes. When you're producing something piece by piece by piece, there's a lot more that can go wrong. So we had to really, really focus on not so much a pair of trousers or a shirt, for example, but things like a jumpsuit, which we also do piece by piece and you know is delivered within 7 to 10 business days. That has so much complexity to it that we really needed to make sure that the sewers knew exactly rigorously what they were producing. And so for that, to that point, we don't introduce that much new product. Mm. These people are producing the same things over and over and over again. They might not be doing them in you know, mass quantities at once, but they are producing, let's say, the same, you know, the foundational wardrobe is eight pieces now with the size of the business as it's growing. Let's say they're producing the same 15 pieces day in, day out. And so when we introduce a new product, if it doesn't start to become core within the first three to four months, we actually retire it. You drop it. Yeah. And, and so as you're talking, I'm thinking about your team that you've assembled and whether those are people that are based in the factory or those are people based in, in head office or anywhere else in, in, in the different parts of your business. How have you ensured that the quality control person knows what they're doing? How have you ensured that the finances work? Because again, if I go back to 2011, you're setting up this business and you've got this great idea. You then actually got to bring this orchestra to life. Yeah. So how did you go about finding those people? I will tell you, Elliot, a lot of mistakes. Mm -hmm. I think HR is the hardest part, honestly, especially when you are potentially younger than some of the people that you're employing and you don't have the experience in their field. People always say that, you know, you should hire your weaknesses. And I'm actually 
actually a firm believer in trying to learn about that area before you hire into it. Because I have been burnt in the past where I'm like, oh my God, great, finance, I can give that to somebody else, excellent. And then you end up with a bookkeeper that messes up your books and things aren't right and then it comes to the end of the year and you're doing your taxes and you're like, what, none of this makes sense. And that has actually happened. So um, it would be too wonderful to just kind of give away the things that you don't want to do. Unfortunately, you really have to be diligent and learn about it. And, you know, to be honest with you, I'm in the shop from, you know, we open at 10. I'm in the shop from sometimes 8.30, 9 a.m. in the morning until after we close at 7. And then I go home and I'm working. And then, you know, I'm planning a wedding, so I'm working on that. So, you know, you go to bed at 1 o'clock in the morning. Like, it's not all rosy. It's a ton of work. And now we have a team in place, but we're growing slowly, and I keep a really tight sheep. It's a sheep, <laughs> ship. It's a lean machine that I'm running, and it's definitely something that I'm aware of, you know, from a cash flow perspective and all of that. Like, the sustainable aspect is great also because it's business sustainable. You know, from a cat, you know, we used to have so much money tied up in, in inventory that we don't have to deal with anymore. So it's been great across the board, but I mean, there's still kinks every single day. And unfortunately, when you have a young team, they're moving back to Australia or they're getting married and, you know, they want to have children or any of those wonderful things in life that mean that you've then got to find somebody else and you get so attached to people. So it's hard when people leave. You get attached to the sheep and the ships. Yes. Tight sheep and tight ships are yes. very important, but actually seriously, very good advice there from Misha about going slowly and also learning about your areas of weakness rather than just delegating yeah. them. In terms of your own leadership style, it strikes me again that you are going to be very thorough. That Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours means you've put your, your graft in so people will look at you and go, she does know. What is your interaction like with these people? And again, you kind of gave a little bit away. You said, I just love, I get, you know, you start to fall in love with people. You yeah. feel very connected and, and that's good. How would they define your style of leadership if they were in the room with us now? I would actually say that they'd probably think that I'm a bit more of a hands-off manager. But um, maybe I'm just thinking that because now that I think about it, I don't delegate enough and I get into the weeds of everything with everyone. So maybe I'm not so hands-off. Maybe I'm a complete micromanager and I'm just fooling myself. Um, but... I think that they would say that I'm very much a colleague as opposed to a boss. You know, I see everybody as being equal in the team. Even, you know, the interns that come in, they get afforded the opportunity to work with the senior members of the team. And, you know, we're still really small. We're about 10 in New York and then we've got about 10 in um, um, Hong Kong and China. So we're, we're, again, to that idea of keeping a lean business model. But I, I think that, to be honest with you, I'm just somebody who enjoys working with other people and... I'm a very collaborative person. You know, you can always ask me anything. And that's actually something that we do on social media. We have like this section called Ask Misha. Um, and we get the most hilarious questions from people that are completely unfashion related. Um, Dear Misha. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. So what does Thatcher like to eat? I'm like, oh, Thatcher's your Thatcher's dog. Thatcher's my dog. That's yeah. Right, yeah. So I'm like, um, okay, we can get into this. But no, I feel like I'm a very accessible boss. Mm. And um, I'm very accessible as a person. I think that, you know, extends even to being in the store. People are kind of shocked when they walk in and they maybe follow there us on social is. media and they're like, that's it's, her. It's Misha. And I'm like, yeah, I'm like, I'm here and I, you know, I want to meet you and I want to, you know, dress you and all of that. You said here, I'm quoting from an interview recently. Oh, God. Oh, Lord. <laughs> uh, I love doing this, but I'm a very impatient person. If I want something, I've got to have it right now. Mm. That isn't the way that life works, though. No. So the, unfortunately. Unfortunately. But the impatience, I imagine, is the drive, right? The impatience is the drive. You see and the suppose, vision and you go, come on, let's get there. We can get there, can't we? You know, I, I'm like... You know, we're two and a half years into this new model. And I'm like, why aren't we doing this? And why haven't we got that? And, you know, <laughs> the rest of the people around me are like, you've only been two and a half years into this model. Like, mm. you know, I suppose in a way, though, because I did almost six years 
in the old model, I feel as though I've been doing this for so long. And um, that, that, by the way, that isn't just in business that I'm impatient. That extends to every area of my life. I see something, I want to do it, and I want to kind of nail it right I'm not, away. I'm not getting in the way. No. no. Whatever you want, you can have it. <laughs> Done. Yeah, that seems simple. I, I think that's very clear. Yeah, it's, it's a very difficult thing for me to um, hold back. And if I think that something can be bettered, I have an opinion and I share that. In terms of that impatience and in terms of that drive, where's that come from, do you think? I would say um, it's very much my father. My father was a businessman and, you know, he is a deeply impatient person um, with myself, with my mother. You know, he kind of knows exactly what he wants and he wants to get it right now. Uh, my mother is much more mellow and relaxed, um, but I think that it probably comes from him. And also, I suppose that as an ambitious person, when you start to get results that becomes a very addictive cycle to live in. So, you know, when something works, or even if something fails and you move on quickly and then you move on to something that works, it becomes something that becomes addictive. So it's not even necessarily that, um, I think I probably was always impatient even as a child, but I think that my impatience has, in business at least, served me quite well. Um, in my personal life, I try to be more and more and more patient because ultimately you realize that in partnerships, you it's very, very important, even with your team members, that you give people the time to be themselves and to grow into what they are as well. Hard and though, isn't it? I mean, very, if you're naturally impatient, that's yes. not going to suddenly stop. Yeah, because you. you think that everything should be seen through your lens. But it should be. Uh, I agree, Misha. I, that's how I feel about life. I mean, I have no issues, obviously. Uh, stay with me for my final chat with Misha Noon and my business shaper. Plus, we'll be playing a track from Kurt Elling. That's all in just a moment. Don't go anywhere. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mish Kondorea. It's business, but it's personal. <laughs> Kind of heaven eyes Closing both my eyes Waiting for surprise that was Golden Lady uh, from Curtelling and Delicious. It was too. I'm with Misha Nuna just for a few more minutes and we talked about a bunch of stuff and I hope people have got a sense of you. I, I certainly have. We haven't talked about the money um, and I think, I, I, I'd like to know what your attitude is towards it because obviously the business is doing well. Um, it's still young. Yeah. Are you making money at this point in the business? We depends on months whether or not we actually break profitability, but we're you know pretty much a break even point all the time. At this have point. you got a have you got a big enough scalable model that works? Because it strikes me obviously that it's quite difficult so, in the way that you're going about business. Yeah, I mean in the sense that we, I, my dream is to really because for me it's not about you know, cashing out or any of that kind of stuff. The business is in my name. And again, it wasn't necessarily something that I thought about all that long and hard when I put the business in my name. You know, a lot of people are like, so did you think about that? You know, what if you sell the business? And I'm like, right, yeah, <laughs> it's already on the door. Anyway, <laughs> um, so it's like the only name I could come up with. So for me, it's I'm in it for the long haul. And, you know, there are a lot of brands, particularly in America right now, that are direct to consumer that are all about you know, having huge valuations, raising huge rounds of money and all that kind of stuff. And I am watching that with great interest, honestly, because I feel as though what comes up often comes down. And when things go up too quickly, I see them also kind of deflate very quickly. Mm. So um, I took on a small seed round of investment about a year and a half ago um, from friends and family. And that has sustained us to this point. 
in my mind, I'd like to get to a certain level of business, probably at least doubling the business before I would take on any more money. And really, it's because I have always felt very strongly about being responsible with money. And, you know, if you're taking money from other people, like it's not just to burn through it and grow as quickly as possible. I mean, I think that there's a lot that can be done in small ways. That's the beautiful thing about having this kind of entrepreneurial mindset and entrepreneurial business. You can prototype so much and if it works, move with it. And if it doesn't, kill it. Mm. And um, I think the thing, for example, with On Demand, you know, when we first started and the business was much smaller, we were able to get goods to people in three to five business days. But now as the business is growing, 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 you know, we really have to say, in order to be completely honest and upfront with you about what when you're going to get your product, it's seven to 10 business days. And that's purely because we are growing at a much higher rate now. But you're in it for the long haul. 100%. And if that's the case, then is the ambition simply to have as many women enjoy um, having fantastic things in their wardrobe which are produced in a fair and sustainable way? Is that is that what it's about? That's definitely a big part of it. Um, I think really the my big ambition, I, I grew up in the Middle East. Um, I was born in Bahrain. I lived there for the first 10 years of my life. And I suppose I absorbed a lot of the culture subliminally, even at that age. Um, you know, I grew up in a traditional family. My father worked. My mother was a stay-at-home mum. And I think for me, the collection has always been about a platform to empower women. And that word is so overused now, empowering, empowering, empowering. But the the reality is, call it what you like, um, I believe in people being able to have autonomy in their life and being able to move through your day as seamlessly as possible. Um, so I want to give you the confidence to do whatever it is that you want to do. And I suppose that's why I love meeting the woman and seeing that she is an empowered woman that works and that is in charge of her life. And I guess that that is really the big ambition. It's not the sustainability factor is, you know, something that I really enjoy and it's I'm solving a problem there. But the real dream and my soulful ambition is to empower women to do what they want to do in life. I think that's a really brilliant ambition. Thank you. Um, stay with it. Good luck. Thank May the you. force be with you. Thank you. Before I let you disappear, though, today, um, back to the pop-up yes. at some point, what's your song choice and why have you chosen it? Um, it's Freddie Freeloader and it's Miles Davis. And, um, you know, I didn't actually love jazz when I was little until I discovered Miles Davis. My dad's a huge jazz lover. And um, he would you know, kind of show me all this other jazz and whatever, and I was like, nope, 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 not into it. And then he turned me on to Miles Davis. And I was like, now I get it. <laughs> so that was my entryway. It's my forever favorite. That was Freddie Freeloader from Miles Davis, the song choice of my business shaper, Misha Nunu. She talked about putting in those 10,000 hours of understanding into her business, which enables her to be super confident and have belief. She talked about being addicted to success. When it works, I just want to get more of it. And she talked about critically the future of this business being all about a platform for empowering women. Really brilliant stuff. You can hear our conversation with Misha all over again whenever you'd like to. As a podcast, just search Jazz Shapers or ask your smart speaker to play Jazz Shapers. Or if you're up nice and early Monday morning, you can catch this programme again just before the business breakfast at 5am here on Jazz FM. We're back next Saturday from 9 with our next business shaper. It's the founder and CEO of kids media company Bright Little Labs. Sophie Dean is our guest. Up next after the news at 10, it's Nigel Williams with more music plus interviews and live sessions too. That's it from me and Jazz Shapers. Have a great weekend. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mish Condorea. It's business but it's personal. 
We hope you enjoy that edition of Jazz Shapers. You'll find hundreds more guests available for you to listen to in our archive. To find out more, just search Jazz Shapers on iTunes or your favourite podcast platform or head over to mishcon.com forward slash jazzshapers. <laughs>